And so if you want to irrefutably uh, connect a transaction to, to a person actually doing it, the only way really is with biometrics because everything else essentially can be and has been circumvented by fraudsters. They can take over a device, they can take over a session, they can steal your password, which we know they do every day. They can use your identity that's stolen in breaches. Um, by the way, there, uh, I think at my last count, there were 72 billion personal records stolen um, in the last five years. Um, so fraudsters use these records to impersonate people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frontier Talk, the world's first podcast on decentralized identity. I'm Raj Hekde, and in this podcast, we explore the intersection of identity, technology, and people. My guest on the pod today is a biometrics veteran who has a solid track record of building customer-first relationships in a privacy-first world. What makes her feel relevant? It was a defining question that convinced her to forego a career in foreign policy and venture into uncharted startup land. How can we deploy biometrics responsibly? Since the early days of the internet, um, she has explored digital identity through the lens of biometrics and has passionately fought for data protection policies that are finally becoming a reality. Biometrics, as you know, is a sensitive type of data and deploying them effectively requires a solid understanding of not just privacy, but also societal usage. Here to share a take on how decentralized biometrics can help businesses build trust-based relationships with their customers, Francis Alazni, co-founder and CEO of Anonibit. Hi, Rajan. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the pod, Francis. Um, let's start off by exploring your journey so far. Um, how were you introduced to the field of biometrics and what aspects of biometrics are you working on? So I've been in this industry for uh, over 20 years. Um, I actually got into it by mistake. I, I originally um, thought I would be some um, ambassador somewhere around the world trying to make uh, peace, uh, make the world a better place. And right. um, actually, I found a better way to do that, in my opinion, uh, through, through my skill set. Um, we need the diplomats, <laughs> but um, my, my focus is on uh, using technology to make the world a better place. And I got involved in uh, biometrics um, really a, as an accidental journey um, among various startups that that I had been involved in. And I was intrigued by the technology as a way to help protect people. Right. Um and uh, to protect uh, their identity and enable them to uh, transact uh, and, and uh, be uh, more um, effective in what, what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. And in fact, um, along the way, one of the, one of the most passionate areas that I had was around uh, privacy, mm-hmm. um, enabling people, and also using this technology uh, to promote and enhance social um, and economic development. So um, I, I got involved uh, in very, very interesting projects and programs um, over the years, as you know. Wow, that is some journey. Um, for our audience, could you perhaps take a step back and 
summarize what exactly are biometrics and what are the processes of a traditional biometric system? So biometrics are essentially uh, mathematical representations of your physical or behavioral um, attributes. Mm -hmm. Your fingerprint, your face, your iris. Um, these are the traditional physical biometrics that um, we've come to know uh, and use in our daily lives. And there are also other biometrics that are be considered behavioral. Um, some are uh, like your voice or the way you walk or the way you type. Um, and most recently within that class, there are advanced behavioral analytic uh, technologies that um, analyze the way you input information um, and other uh, types of behaviors that you exhibit when you use an application or a device that make you you. Great explanation there, um, short and simple. Um, you've seen the industry evolve from its infancy stages to um, what it has become today. Um, we are witnessing a number of government and private organizations that are experimenting with biometrics and are adopting biometrics to not just identify people, but also verify the identities, uh, be it a fingertip, a face scan, or even an iris scan for that matter. Um, what, in your opinion, were the biggest inflection points that put biometrics on the map? Oh, this is an industry that has gone through a lot. Um, I would say the, the first uh, major inflection point was actually 9-11, um, yeah. where it was recognized that um, there are technologies that could help um, really identify uh, the bad guys. And I would say that was the, the first major moment um, for this industry and facial recognition in particular. Um, and actually, we might we might want to backtrack to that because about a, a six months to a year before 9-11, there were a lot of other things going on in the industry with regards to privacy. Right. Um, and... Um, and then, the, and then after 9-11, uh, the pendulum swung the other way and stayed there for quite some time as people were afraid of, of the, you know, terrorist activity and how you can identify and predict, you know, what, what, uh, what will happen across borders, within borders. Um, and then the second, I would say, major inflection point for the industry was uh, Apple's adoption of the touch ID on the on the phone, right. um, and that put biometrics in the hands of the everyday consumer. Um, and we can thank um, uh, my friend Scott Moody, who founded Authentic, the company that um, Apple uh, ultimately acquired to do that. But that was a huge, uh, pivotal moment. For, for the entire industry it was the first time that people really thought about, you know, using their fingerprint to log into their device or to do a transaction. Right. Um, even though, you know, we'd been talking about this for years. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, the evolution of that, the face ID, which became much more, um, you know, brought it even more home. And globally, um, uh, Around that time, um, India um, adopted their national um, ID framework, um, which actually is uh, considered to be in many ways, it's not perfect, 
but in many ways is considered a standard for the developing world and how to manage identity, distribute social services, um, essentially take care of the citizenry. And um, we saw that in play in other countries. Um, in Pakistan, uh, a few years after that, there was uh, a big natural disaster and they used biometrics to distribute emergency aid to people. And right. then you saw other countries today. Nigeria has a biometric uh, credit card national ID. And we see, um, uh, you know, other countries that are uh, distributing pensions and um, really um, uh, using it as, as really foundational. Um, and that, that's playing out in many ways today with the vaccine, you know, passport, which I'm sure, you know, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but, you know, back to, uh, my career and and and, um, uh, and the inflection point. Um, one of the most interesting projects that I got involved in over the years was the use of biometrics to um, create uh, a system for farmers in Africa to get um, aid uh, to to uh, provide genetically modified seed based on the yields of their crops. Um, once they were biometrically uh, enabled, they could go to banks and get microloans and, and things like this. So mm -hmm. really the foundational, you know, once biometrics were out there, it really became the foundational for, for many, many, many programs. And I think lastly, um, COVID in the last uh, year uh, or so really highlighted the need for remote identification, whether it was mm -hmm. work, you know, workforce operating from home, whether it was uh, the explosion of e-commerce and, you know, transacting um, and all of the fraud that, you know, came about because of weak authentication. I think, uh, you know, everything uh, together uh, really highlighted uh, and pushed uh, biometrics uh, for the, to the forefront once again. One thing that has always intrigued me, uh, for that matter, is the permanence of biometrics. So, mm -hmm. Do biometric features remain constant over time? Um, you know, as I get older, I might get more wrinkly and the orientation of my face might actually change just a bit. Um, so I was just wondering if biometric systems can actually recognize me from a prior scan. Yeah, so first of all, Raj, forever young. Don't worry I about the so. wrinkles. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the one, one of the, the main benefits of biometrics is their permanence. Um, you know, is their irrefutability. Um, and, and the fact that it's really the only link between a person, um, uh, and their, and their physical, you know, being, um, especially as, as we have more and more, uh, remote interactions, uh, self-service interactions, uh, fast track, uh, and whatnot. Um, some, uh, technologies are physically more permanent, um, than others. Some are naturally inclined to, to change. Um, mm -hmm. obviously your facial appearance, your behavioral attributes. Uh, but these technologies have improved uh, over the years, both in terms of accommodating these changes and mm -hmm. uh, second, in terms of recognizing um, the differences and um, improving algorithms to detect to detect those changes and still uh, ensure that a person um, is you know, who they are, even if they're wearing glasses or they change their hair, you know, the, these are, these are problems, uh, actually that were solved, uh, quite, uh, some time ago. Um, and now, interestingly enough, 
COVID presented another challenge, which was not about mm-hmm. the wrinkles, but it was about, you know, face masks. Um, and even that, you know, the industry has worked um, extremely uh, uh, hard to overcome. And you do see algorithms and technologies, uh, even facial uh, technologies that, that can properly um, identify and detect people, um, even if even if they're wearing a mask, which is obviously very important um, as we enter the reopening phase, right, to allow people to enter facilities, travel in airports where they are going to be um, expected. So the answer is we have uh, made a lot of uh, strides and the systems are able to recognize uh, those changes. Fingers crossed, Francis. I hope your words actually come true um, in this case. Um, so I think that's a great segue to actually explore the intersection of identity and biometrics, particularly in the times we're living in today. Um, identity, as you might know, is an innately physical concept. Um, do biometrics effectively anchor digital mechanisms to physical identity? So it's actually a great question, especially for people that are thinking about zero trust and, mm-hmm. you know, how do you, you know, really identify people and how do you, um, how do you ensure that somebody really is uh, who they are? Um, a lot of identity frameworks today have been based on, uh, up until now, have been based on pointers or uh, derivatives or um, uh, risk uh, association. Uh, like location, like device, um, and other, you know, and other, uh, kinds of, um, you know, indicators, uh, mm-hmm. usage, usage patterns, um, uh, behavioral analytics, uh, which is a type of uh, usage, uh, uh, analytics, um, you know, how long, how often, uh, the activities that people do. So based on all of these, uh, pointers, I would say up, a, you know, if you, if you're not using a biometric, these are all, um, risk type of indicators of whether a person is who, who they claim to be. But at the end of the day, none of those are the actual person. And so if you want to irrefutably uh, connect a transaction to, to a person actually doing it, the only way really is with biometrics because mm-hmm. everything else essentially can be and has been circumvented by fraudsters. They can take over a device, they can take over a session, they mm-hmm. can steal your password, which we know they do every day. They can yes. use your identity that's stolen in breaches. Um, it, it, by the way, there's, uh, I think at my last count, there were 72 billion personal records stolen um, in the last five years. Um, okay. So fraudsters use these records to impersonate people. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as a consumer, as a citizen, um, I want to make sure that nobody's impersonating me and all of these other things are just, you know, um, bits of information that other people can use to pretend that they're me. We are currently living in unprecedented times where the explosion of personal information is transforming tech, business and society. Um, And as a result, the notion of identity as such is changing. Uh, what was once considered to be a singular concept has now converted to plurality. Um, so my question to you is, can biometrics actually play a role in unifying multiple identities? So I think uh, biometrics in, in a lot of ways is central to to that um, unification. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, again, there are different ways um, to 
to uh, confer um, uh, an identity uh, credential or an identity framework. But um, as, as, as the India example um, shows, and, and you see this uh, in, in other national uh, ID schemes, um, it's really one record, one identity, and then from there you can spin off whatever you know other applications, use cases, credentials um, ultimately you know that you need. Um, there is also a fear which we saw in U.S. driver's licenses here, mm-hmm. um, where you know people will. Uh, apply, um, if you're not using a biometric, people will apply for a driver's license under multiple identities. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the problem of, uh, I, I mean, I use Apple Pay all the time, but uh, I'm very well aware that I could take your credit card uh, or that you could take my credit card and put it on your phone with your biometrics and nobody would know. Um, so at the end of the day, is if you know, there's no way to really bind that identity to the biometric, to to the person, mm-hmm. then it's not a strong identity. Right. Um, and just to add to that, um, the current industry paradigm, as you might know, is to basically store sensitive data in centralized honeypots. And the implications of this are, unfortunately, irreversible data breaches. Uh, the biggest example being the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, on a state level the, the hack of the Office of Personal Management where literally the personal identifiable information of millions of people were actually compromised. Um, so my question to you is, what is the significance of such a data breach? Why should people actually care? And what actually happens when a biometric is compromised? So it actually has happened. <laughs> um, right. it's, this is not a theoretical question. And, you know, governments today, governments, agencies, entities um, have databases, not just of biometrics, but a lot of other, you know, personal information, because it's their responsibility to, you know, back to what we were saying in the beginning, to transact and manage um, and to ensure the integrity of of the other systems that, that derive from them. So it's not that they don't have a need for personal information. Um, the question is, how do you manage it in a way that is secure and that doesn't, you know, lead to downstream identi- other identity, you know, problem. Right. So, um, so I think, I think, uh, I think that's important, you know, to, to understand. We're not, I, I, I think that there is a need for governments to, for example, issue passports. We need, mm-hmm passports for travel. Um, and that means that somebody is creating a passport system and is distributing passwords. Now we see verifiable credentials, you know, picking up steam. There's mm-hmm. a need for that because people need to show these credentials uh, in different places. So then the question becomes, how do you manage all of this information to minimize the chances of these irreversible breaches and the uh, chances of people's personal information, which, uh, you know, in my mind, biometrics is the most sensitive of all. Um, and uh, and that really, really becomes the question. So around the central honeypots, it's, it's primarily because up until now, um, technologies were based on, or biometrics, uh, and even, you know, personal data frameworks were, were based on, um, on the notion that, you know, everything had to be in one place. 
Um, and from a biometrics perspective, we can talk about why. Um, mm-hmm. But as we've seen with different uh, uh, DID and um, other verifiable credential frameworks now, you know, with blockchain and others, that it is not necessarily always required to have a central honeypot. Mm-hmm. Um, with biometrics in particular, um, that limitation, um, I, well, we, we could take a step back, but with biometrics, there were always two choices. You either store the biometric on uh, in a database, an essential honeypot, as you say, mm-hmm. you know, to protect it, or you put the template locally. Um, we see credit cards that have biometric templates stored on the card. Mm-hmm. There were technologies, you know, these are match on card technologies. And then it became the biometrics that were stored on devices, uh, on the phones. Right. Um, and, um, and the reason for that is that the template, the biometric, the mathematical representation, um, of that, of that, uh, biometric always had to reside in a holistic form, uh, in one place for matching. And the reason is that the way the template is established is that you extract the features and then you measure the distances between the features in order to come up with that mathematical representation. Mm-hmm. And if you actually try to decentralize that template, you could do it. You could definitely mm-hmm. decentralize that template. But the problem becomes when you have to do the matching because um, right. you needed everything back together again in order to do, do that uh, computation. And that's why you see the choices of either central honeypot or these localized uh, storage mechanism of these um, individual templates. So as long mm-hmm. as everything was there, uh, you know, you, you could actually do a match. Um, mm-hmm. And then with the central honeypots, you're at the risk of a breach. With the mm-hmm. device-based approach, you're at a risk of... of hacker or fraudster uh, just, you know, circumventing the entire process because right. it's not bound to, to any rooted, you know, identity. So those, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when you ask about the state of biometrics, the state of biometrics essentially has become a choice between, you know, trading, trading off the security uh, apparatus, if you will, of a centralized mechan- uh, system where you don't really ha- necessarily have privacy or the privacy framework of a device approach, but you miss out on the you know security framework uh, within the whole system. Right. So that that's been you know the state of play. And so, what's the end game here? Is there an alternative means to ensure someone is whom they claim to be without relying on centralized honeypots or device-based biometrics? So, so the, uh, you know, what, what we've seen today are, uh, breakthroughs in, um, in multi-party computing and in bio, mm-hmm. that, com- that leverage of biometrics where, where you actually don't have those limitations. You don't need to choose between essential honeypot or a device-based approach in order to mm-hmm. provide both uh, privacy and security. Um, and this is actually my my new uh, venture, uh, my new uh, exercise, uh, baby, um, mm-hmm. to really you know bring uh, this uh, framework uh, out there and, and to solve uh, this problem 
once and for all. And basically, you know, we, we can, we can enjoy the benefits, um, the convenience, the security, um, and, and all, everything that comes with the promise of biometrics without having to deal with the risk of, um, of identity theft and, uh, you know, breaches and, and hacks and really reducing and eliminating that um, liability. And that's, um, you know, ultimately, I think the spirit of GDPR and all of the other data protection uh, mm-hmm. laws, right? They were always saying like privacy by design, minimize what you have, you know, try not to store anything. How do you, you know, just mm-hmm. do, do the minimum. But that always would cause a conundrum with the agencies that had to do KYC, that had to do strong authentication. How do you deliver those services? Right. And so with these new frameworks, with what we're doing at Anonabit, I think we're really, for the first time, able to to answer the call, privacy and security for biometrics uh, and identity. Right. I think now is a good time to welcome your baby into this world um, <laughs> and to actually explore your work in the space. Um, could you perhaps um, tell us what exactly is Anonabit and what's the fundamental problem that you're trying to solve? So um, Anonibit is a privacy-first uh, platform uh, for managing and securing uh, biometrics and uh, personal data. Um, we are essentially, instead of relying on the features and the distances between features in order to uh, create a template and then do an authentication, we, you know, our question was, what if you didn't have a template, uh, but you could still do biometric authentication? Um, what if there was no centralized system? What if there was no place for a fraudster or a hacker to get into, but you could still make sure that somebody is who they claim to be in whatever uh, interaction they have? Um, and that is, you know, that, that is uh, what, what we've done. So the, the decentralized framework, um, instead of relying on templates um, and 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 dealing with, with the problems associated with template uh, management. Um, our approach essentially breaks down the biometric information into what's, uh, into anonymized bits. That's why the mm-hmm. name of the company is Anonabit. Mm-hmm. And we use these bits, I'm uh, sorry, we, we, we store these bits uh, throughout a multi-party computing system of nodes mm-hmm. um, where they are kept and they're never they're never retrieved. We never bring anything back together again. We never reconstruct anything. So there is no single point of failure, and there's nothing for a hacker to find and nothing to steal. So then mm-hmm. the next question is, okay, so then how are you doing the matching? Right. <laughs> if there's no template, <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute, I don't get it, because it's like a totally different, um, you know, totally different approach uh, to handling and managing and doing, you know, biometrics. So, um, so what we're doing is uh, the, the, we have different types of nodes. We have um, storage nodes, we have mapping nodes, and we have computation nodes. So when we break down the biometric information into these anonymized bits, they go they go to and they go to the storage nodes where they're kept. And uh, and these nodes can be anywhere there that a, 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 an anonymous service is is being run. And these anonymized mm-hmm. bits are tiny. 
meaningless pieces of information. If somebody somehow picks that up, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not okay. connected. It's so it's not connected actually to any of the other mm-hmm. features. It's like an independent, right. meaningless piece of information, mm-hmm. um, like a crumb. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and, and so when, when you actually want to do a match, um, the, the system breaks down the, the biometric into, uh, these anonymized bits again, maps it mm-hmm. out in the same way. And mm-hmm. then, um, the, these computation nodes kick into gear and they, they handle the measurement of each bit, uh, in comparison individually and then, uh, reconciles all of the mathematical uh, computations in order mm-hmm. to determine the authentication. And so this is the breakthrough where we're able to do both the storage and the matching mm-hmm. um, in a distributed manner. And you mm-hmm. can't do this on the blockchain with biometrics um, mm-hmm. or in other uh, types of um, – and there's been attempts. I mean, th- this, is not, this is not a new problem you know, to solve. Okay. Um, but there's been many, many, many attempts, and it's the first time that uh, we've actually been able to uh, overcome uh, mm-hmm. the, the challenges. Right. You earlier alluded to the fact that traditional biometric modeling almost always requires a biometric template. Could you perhaps elaborate on what a biometric template actually is? And does Anonabit bypass this requirement? You know, is Anonabit compatible with every biometric algorithm out there? So as I mentioned, um, there in the Anonabit system, there is no template. There's nothing okay. for fraudster to find, and there's mm-hmm. nothing for a hacker to steal. And um, the system completely anonymizes the the biometric um, information um, and distills it into these um, anonymized bits, and um, and that's essentially how the system um, has overcome uh, the challenges uh, by by distributing the the matching at a bit level, if you will, um, as opposed to having to um, have the template um, in a full, you know, in a full form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should have mentioned that um, the attempts to do this in the past failed because, um, not because of the distribution of the information, but when the time came to reconstruct, uh, a lot of the, or even at the encryption level, a lot of the information would be lost features would not necessarily line up properly. Uh, and, and ultimately the, the mathematics of, of manage, of, of measuring, uh, failed. Um, and, and if it did work, um, you know, to, to reconcile everything, it took way too long. Right. So, you know, in the world of authentication, you're talking like under a second. Um, and if it's not seamless, it doesn't, you know, when I say it doesn't work, I mean both in terms of, um, you know, time and in terms of, of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it needs to be, you know, practical. And right. um, this is actually a problem that I've known about since 2007, when mm-hmm. some governments, you know, recognized that having their citizen database, uh, citizen information in a national database was not necessarily a good idea. Um, and th- there have been uh, numerous attempts, uh, numerous that I'm personally aware of, to try to do to try to decentralize. And I think we're only, like I said, um, w- w- this is a breakthrough that will that will address that. 
Um, so in our last episode, Dr. Harry Behrens had an interesting comment where he mentioned that identity is a means but not an end. Um, I'm curious to know, can your technology be applied beyond biometrics? So what are the potential use cases that are made possible by Anonibit? So Anonibit essentially supports uh, all the use cases across the digit, what we call the digital identity lifecycle. Um, when it comes to uh, doing KYC, which is exploding right now, um, we the, the storage of all of that personal data that's being collected through all of these KYC processes. Um, you know, where is that going? Where are all those? Where is that information uh, being held? Um, so, Anonibit uh, essentially can act as a um, as a secure identity vault. Um, right. You know, for managing for managing that information, um, and then secure authentication. Um, Authentication for digital uh, transactions, um, mm -hmm. which there are numerous, right? We usually think about uh, banking or, um, or, uh, or healthcare, but uh, we pretty much are logging into to every uh, application that we use today, even, you know, social media and games. So right. that means that all of those companies are essentially, um, you know, holding personal information and they too are, uh, you know, at risk for a breach. So any entity, whether it's uh, something serious as, uh, you know, gaming, uh, sorry, as, uh, as, uh, as banking or as fun as TikTok, um, you know, all of these entities essentially are still managing some kind of personal information and they're trying to uh, authenticate their users. So securely mm -hmm. authenticating and making sure that people are who they claim to be in a way that doesn't compromise their security, uh, sorry, their, their privacy or their security. Um, so any application uh, for secure authentication um, uh, is, is, is for sure um, uh, a use case for, for Anonibit. Mm -hmm. Anonibit, interestingly enough, can also be used to store non-biometric uh, information. Um, you can use the framework to store crypto keys, uh, secrets, private keys for blockchain applications, mm -hmm. um, master passwords. Um, so tons of information that is sensitive, that is private, that should be stored in, in, uh, in a vault, so to speak. But the, but the catch here is that we're using the biometric, uh, to allow the person to retrieve it. So for all those uh, crypto uh, holders in the audience, you know, that 25% of them that don't remember the passwords to their crypto account, um, imagine that, you know, your, your information, your, your password could be stored in a, you know, in a decentralized vault, just like your cryptocurrency is. And then you use your biometric, you know, to retrieve that. Um, you know, I think that would make those people very, very, very happy that, that they're not letting all of that money, you know, sit in, sit in languish. Um, so, so that would be, you know, the third one. And then there are tons of other um, applications leveraging mm -hmm. the platform to send uh, one-time passwords, to resolve tokens for payments. There are tons and tons of other business services, uh, ongoing KYC or AML uh, checks, uh, merchant um, merchant ID applications. So tons right. and tons of business services that where where you know the blockchain um, is not applicable for whatever for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, Anonibit provides that uh, alternative. 
um, secure uh, and privacy first framework for uh, storing and managing all kinds of uh, personal uh, data. And, you know, finally, I, we, we can't, um, you know, we, we can't leave out what's going on with vaccine passports and healthcare today, which, um, you know, has been, this is an area that, um, you know, has been um, quite behind, um, mm-hmm. if I might say, in, in terms of the use of biometrics. Uh, we, we see a lot more in the financial world for obvious reasons and in government and travel applications. Uh, but the, the, the state of play with COVID and where we are with uh, issuing vaccine passports and health passports, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, um, I think they're called bio passports that say, mm-hmm. that, you know, that you had a negative, you know, test. Uh, really adds an important layer of, uh, of identity management and identity protection in there that, that really can't be ignored. So I think the time is now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the healthcare industry to apply some of these concepts um, and, and, and lessons learned from other industries and put them into to these frameworks uh, for securing, you know, these new credentials and these new digital applications that, that they have to support. Um, so it's a great opportunity. Right. You earlier mentioned about the privacy by design framework, and I would like you to perhaps double click on this concept, so to say. Could you perhaps explain what exactly do you mean by privacy by design and why is it the need of the hour today? So we see a lot of companies, um, you know, not just uh, IBM. There's uh, many, many companies mm-hmm. that are, and governments, um, you know, that are thinking about how to issue vaccine passports. Um, and there's a lot of concern um, on the integrity of the issuing authority. This is right. a global thing, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily what uh, IBM um, is doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, globally, there's a lot of concern, both on the integrity, because there's so many different players, private, you know, industry, as well as uh, public. Uh, so the integrity of the, of the actual uh, passports and documents mm-hmm. that, that are being um, issued, uh, part, m- much of it is because the, these, uh, at, at least in the United States, I'll give you the U.S. perspective, and then we can do the global perspective. But, right. you know, the U.S. does not have uh, an identification framework. A lot of people don't even have IDs, um, not because they don't have access to them, but because they don't want them or because uh, this is not a priority for them. Um, mm-hmm. We also obviously have a lot of um, undocumented uh, people uh, in this country that are afraid to step forward to get IDs, but are still, you know, entitled to get um, a vaccine. So mm-hmm. the, in this country, we have a big problem because these uh, vaccine cards and even the vaccine uh, applications and passports are not bound to a rooted uh, identity. We actually mm-hmm. don't know when somebody presents these apps or these cards that they're issued to the, to that person. Um, and then even if they are issued to the person who uh, is, you know, claiming uh, their, their uh, identity, um, when you go and use them, there is no biometric on them or connected to them. So we actually don't know if the person is, you know, the bonafide holder. And mm-hmm. to, my, to me, 
this is really just a recipe for a public health and public safety disaster if we are going to be relying on these documents to reopen society. Because I could give you my Excelsior Pass and, you know, you're, you're, you're going to just flash it and nobody will know. Um, you know, I could give you my information to get one. Um, and, you know, this could be amongst friends, This, but it could also have, you know, um, real um, uh, nefarious uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to really understand just just like, you know, the, the system of passports, you know, have standards and have we know that if somebody presents a passport, uh, that they've gone through some kind of a uh, of a vetting process per the ICAO standard and the and the pro- and the document itself um, mm-hmm. has um, it is is secure. And um, when it comes to uh, this is just one example. There are other standards mm-hmm. that are being that are being proliferated around vaccine passports. ICAO is one, uh, mm-hmm. but there are others. I, I'm not picking. I'm I'm not here to say one is better than the other. Right. But I think that you know the, the the one thing that they have in common is that at, at least outside the U.S. is that uh, they, they could be bound to a rooted identity, and you mm-hmm. could manage uh, a a biometric authentication process um, if you wanted to. And then, so then you can then ask the other question, okay, well, where is all of that information ultimately residing? Even if I'm Mm -hmm. showing a a health passport, that means that somebody somewhere still has a registry, still has all of this information. And then we're back to, you know, the privacy by design and decentralizing that that honeypot of information. So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying that I think in the healthcare arena, there's a real Mm -hmm. opportunity uh, just, you know, to to really leapfrog uh, a lot of these privacy and usage concerns by decentralizing the, mm-hmm. the registries, uh, so that there's nothing for anybody, so th- th- that, you know, won't be stolen or hacked. And mm-hmm. obviously we know that, you know, just like biometrics is very, very, very sensitive data. Health information is also extremely, extremely sensitive, uh, for, right. for other, you know, for other reasons. And so decentralizing all of that information, I mean, we have a real opportunity here, um, mm-hmm. you know, to decentralize those registries and to mm-hmm. ensure the integrity of the system and the credentials uh, that are being issued, as well as to use uh, use these credentials with secure biometrics in order mm-hmm. to ensure that they're used properly. Um, mm-hmm. And if I come across, you know, extra passionate about this, it's because I do feel like uh, there wasn't a lot of, because we were in the middle of an emergency, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of things just kind of like, uh, were, were put out there without mm-hmm. full thought uh, as to as to the implications. But I do mm-hmm. believe that there is still time <laughs> to mm-hmm. do this properly um, and not just, you know, put it out there. There are, in the United States, um, there are um, uh, pharmacies, um, there are government agencies, there are nonprofit organizations that are all now in the business of issuing mm-hmm. vaccines and vaccine passports. They should be given, you know, standards to follow to ensure 
that you know people really are who the claim, who they claim to be, and that these things right. are not just going to be you know handed out like hotcakes. Absolutely. So coming back to Anon a bit, um, you know, you mentioned the term decentralized quite a few times, and uh, more often than not, the term decentralized is almost always associated with blockchain technology. Um, so when it comes to decentralized biometrics and Anonibit's technology, I'm just curious to know, um, did you ever consider blockchain uh, during the development of Anonibit? So the reason that we developed um, the reason that we developed Anonibit with the structure that we did is that you cannot do uh, the biometric matching um, on mm-hmm. the blockchain. You will not right. hear, uh, you know, much about um, biometric uh, uh, matching and processes um, mm-hmm. on the blockchain. You will hear a lot about uh, storing credentials um, on the blockchain or using blockchain pointers to to the actual uh, credential that, you know, that may be somewhere else. And the blockchain is, is really like releasing the key to provide the, the access to the credential that is stored in a central honeypot somewhere. Right. Um, but um, but you will not hear about the actual processing happening mm-hmm. um, on the blockchain, which is is what you need uh, for for biometric um, authentication. So for us, that wasn't really an option. Um, and there are certainly you know other. This is where the multi-party uh, computing and machine learning and you know other other. Uh, um, Concepts went into uh, what we what we uh, developed. Zero mm-hmm. zero knowledge proof was was another one. So we actually to t- to create our uh, our uh, infrastructure, we actually borrowed from multiple frameworks in order to to make it work for biometrics. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm curious to know um, when is Anonibit actually going to be coming in. So we're we're actually starting to to deploy, um, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting the deployment are in very broad range of uh, use cases and applications, which supports, you know, what I was saying around, you know, the need for uh, everywhere for, um, you know, pr- protecting privacy and ensuring the integrity of, of interactions. Um, we are seeing um, applications for securing passwords, uh, uh, sorry, storing uh, master passwords um in the anonymous infrastructure and using the biometric to invoke it and to to, to retrieve it. Uh, we see uh, blockchain applications actually, where uh, they want to store the private key mm-hmm. um, on our system. And again, uh, ensure that only the bona fide person is releasing that, that private key. Crypto right. applications where they want to uh, ensure that the uh, KYC mechanism is bound to the authentication mechanism because today mm-hmm. those processes uh, are broken. Um, access control uh, applications mm-hmm. where the, the entities don't want to build huge repositories of visitor databases. They just, Absolutely. you know, it's like a hot potato. Nobody wants to hold information anymore. Mm-hmm. Um Gaming, um, you know, everybody is subject to GDPR and they're afraid mm-hmm. of, you know, breaches and mm-hmm. government agencies that have already experienced their own breach in the gut in the mm-hmm. U.S. You know, we, we over five million people 
are still suffering today from a, a breach that happened, you know, five years ago, Absolutely. where fingerprints, you know, were stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, the fallout uh, is real, and we're seeing a lot of these securing vaults, mm-hmm. uh, um, and a lot of these other vaults that, that are being created. You know, people are are realizing that you can't use a password or even two-factor authentication to to secure, you know, other like loan documents or things Absolutely. like this. So the, no the implications are are wide, uh, and and we're seeing that as as we roll out. Right. So in this podcast, we do things differently. Frontier Talk not just explores the intersection of identity and technology, but also people, the frontiers who are actually driving this ecosystem. Our next segment is called Frontier Fire, where I pose a series of rapid fire questions to our guests on the show. Um, so Francis, you roughly have around thirty seconds to expand on any answer you might give today. So are you ready for the challenge? I'm ready. Perfect. Let's get started. Um, what's your mantra in life? So I have a plaque sitting on my desk, uh, and it says, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about dancing in the rain. And uh, and this is uh, essentially what's carried uh, me through. Um, and the sun always comes out shining the next day. Great. Um, what's the best piece of career advice that you ever received? One door opens another, so, you know, but it's up to you to walk through the doorway. Super inspiring. Um, I now want to shift the focus on diversity in tech. Um, in recent times, the tech industry has put some effort in promoting and increasing diversity in the space. However, such initiatives don't seem to work, at least not yet. Um, in your view, should the focus be on Equality of outcome or equality of opportunity? Equality of opportunity. Um, I've done tons of work in the developing world, um, and I see it actually in my own backyard. There's there's a big, um, you know, a lot of debates um, around around diversity and opportunity, and mm-hmm. ultimately, it's not fair to anyone if uh, and you know if if you put people that are not set up for success in in a system that you know it is 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 going in a different direction right. so uh in my mind we have to set people up for success and we right. have to do the foundation and then they will walk through those doors and finally what's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast so my advice uh so this is a podcast of uh you know people uh, interested in in uh, AI and, and blockchain and uh decentralized uh, identity um you know my advice is essentially to look beyond the the, the status quo um because there there's a lot of things happening in the world of AI and decentralized identity um that don't necessitate the trade-offs between privacy and security mm-hmm. uh, that we had until now. Um, and so we need to step out of our comfort zone with biometric templates and think about, you know, new frameworks and how to solve problems that, you know, really, really protect uh, our society. Francis, it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. This was a fascinating primer on biometrics. And on behalf of our audience, I personally would like to thank you for making all of us smarter. Um, I wish you and Anonibet the best of luck. And I hope to hear a lot more from you in the coming years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raj. Take care. Hope to talk to you soon. That was Francis Zelazny. Francis will be speaking at the European Identity and Cloud Conference, EIC, and you can get your tickets via the link in the description box below. Um, I'm also excited to announce that Frontier Talk is now live on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so go on and stream it from your favorite platform. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation on all things biometrics. And if you did, please go on and share this with anyone who might find this information useful. Um, and until next time, this is me, Raj Hekde, hoping to see you all again on this journey to redefine the eye in identity. Stay safe, stay happy. Cheers. 